This is a reading from Colossians. <laughs> um, if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it's page 201. And it starts in verse number 8. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abuse, la abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is in all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Our second reading is from John 14. I'll be reading verses 8 through 14. If you'd like to follow along, that should be on page 108 of the Pew Bibles. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, God. to God. This morning, we're so um, excited to welcome Doug Paget um, as our preacher. Doug is a pastor, pastor and author and social activist, and he's based in Minneapolis. Doug um, is also the executive director of an organization called Vote Common Good. Uh, we uh, were a part, Doug was the founder of a movement called Emergent Village or in the early 2000s that uh, was really formative in my own theology and thinking and so it's just such a privilege for me to have him here and would you join me in welcoming Doug. <coughs> Hi. 
Thank you. Uh, thanks. I, I really have been looking forward to this. Uh, I'm on a book tour and traveling around talking about this book I wrote called Outdoing Jesus. And one of the things I get to do is travel to churches on Sunday morning. And it's really fun, especially when the choir stays up in the choir spot. That's one of my favorites. I, uh, the church that I'm a part of in Minneapolis, we meet in the round. So having people behind me feels really comforting. And uh, I've also been in enough churches where I know preaching to the choir is not such a bad thing. I have, uh, I've known a lot of choir members, you know. Uh, preaching to the choir works out pretty well for all of us. Uh, so thank you so much for having me here. I, I mentioned I'm on this book tour. I wrote a book called Outdoing Jesus. It actually frames off of that passage that Chris just read there. Maybe you heard the little line. Jesus says, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and do even greater works than these. I don't remember when I first heard that phrase. I got into Christianity when I was a late teenager, but somewhere early on I heard that phrase, that idea that we should be living in a way of Jesus to not only do what Jesus did, but even greater works than these. And that, that's been 30 plus, 35 plus years that I've been thinking about that. And it's been noodling around in my head and sort of disrupting me at times. What is that about? So I wrote this book with the title Outdoing Jesus, because as the sermon title says, I've come to a few conclusions about that. I think it's really good news that Jesus' big idea is that we should do the works he's doing and do even greater works than these. I think it's a good idea. It's good news. You're also the kinds of people who are doing it. I wrote this book not so much to tell you to be more like Jesus. In fact, that'll be a brand promise this morning. I'm not going to tell you to go be more like Jesus. I'm going to encourage you to notice that you already are and that that's really good news. So a little bit out of the book today for the sermon, and then I'm on a book tour, so I was going to sell you books, but the publisher sent the books, and instead of sending this cute little book that you can read in a, you know, a long afternoon, they sent a bunch of these. They, <laughs> they sent the wrong book. This is the Erdman's Dictionary of Early Judaism. So... <laughs> Oh, boy. You know, we might be out doing Jesus, but sometimes it's still tough to fulfill a book order uh, in the world. So just a little reminder, there's still a lot of work to do, huh? Uh, there's, still, there's still a lot going on. All right, so this idea, uh, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and do even greater works than these. That passage comes, as you heard Chris mention, it comes out of the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, maybe you already know, but I grew up uh, in a family that didn't go to church, so I'm often reminded that not everybody knows and not everybody remembers. So I like to just remind all of us that the Gospels come in a set of four in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of those is not quite like the others, and that's the Gospel of John. In fact, that phrase, that statement, that saying, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and do greater works than these, that's only in the Gospel of John. It's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell other stories, but in the Gospel of John, it involves Jesus saying that. And the works Jesus is referring to in that passage, the works that I do, you will do even greater works than these. In the Gospel of John, it is a specific set of works. In fact, the Gospel lays out seven of them, seven specific miracles. In the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's all kinds of miracles that are talked about. They're kind of put together in random orders. There's a whole set of them. They don't really seem to be connected. But in the Gospel of John, there's only seven. The Gospel of John is doing something particular. 
What it's actually doing is restructuring, retelling a creation narrative. You might know that the book of Genesis starts with a creation narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the poem says. And then the poem goes on to sort of describe seven days of creation. Day one, God creates the sun and the moon. Day two, right? And it goes on through day seven, in which is the Sabbath day. On the seventh day, God rests. Well, in the Gospel of John, it also wants to set up a creation narrative. Because what the Gospel of John is doing is calling humanity to a new way of living and being with Jesus as the leader of this new way of humanity. The Gospel of John is this brilliant telling of a recreation narrative of a new way of humanity in which Jesus is not only presented to us as the son of God, but as the brother of humanity. Now look, I, I'm, I'm all about proclaiming Jesus to be the son of God. I've learned enough in my Christianity to not deny the divinity of anyone. But we're not just to call Jesus the son of God for the purposes of calling Jesus the son of God. It's so that we can call one another the children of God. Because that's what the Gospel of John does. You might remember that in Genesis, in the order after the people are created, then Adam and Eve in the poetry have two, two sons, Cain and Abel. They get married to two women. Not really clear where they come from, but anyway, they're in the storyline. Right? It's not the point of it. The point of Genesis is not to tell us how we got the earth or where people came from. It's to tell us how did this family of life and family of faith come from. But then it goes... Father gives, uh, impregnates a woman who gives birth to a child, who gives birth to a child, who gives birth to a child, and it creates a patriarchal narrative. In fact, we even refer to the ancients of the faith as the patriarchs. Father gives birth, father leads a family where one's giving birth to another. But in the Gospel of John, it says something different. It also starts out in the with a creation poem. You might know the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now it's starting to sound like a lot like Christmas around here, right? Those are the times when you say that. And in this piece of poetry, it says that to all were given the right to become children of God. Not born of a husband's will or of natural descent, but born of God. So the Gospel of John is actually this narrative that wants to say, in the way humanity should be living, we're going to get rid of the patriarchal narratives where it's human descent or tradition or family line or racial background or who's your daddy, but all are born of God. And in this world, you start to see that Jesus is this character that then is going to lead the new way of humanity. So then instead of having seven days of creation in the book of Genesis, the Gospel of John lays out seven miraculous signs. And it numbers them. Number one, number two, we're going to talk about number two today. Number one is Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. When I was thinking about which one of the miracles I would do for the good people of Valley Presbyterian, I thought, you know, I, I bet we should do that one about turning water into wine at the party when they ran out of alcohol at the party <laughs> and saved the. But that's a really good one, too. Worth reading in the Gospel of John and worth reading in this book, too. It's a wonderful story. But we're going to read number two this morning. In a few minutes, Nathan and I, Joe, are going to read that one for you. But hold on for, to, to this idea for a moment, that what's happening in the Gospel of John is that these seven miraculous signs are not just random signs. They're designed as a way to point. They're signs pointing to a way of humanity, a way that we ought to live, a way that we could be. 
they start to shape out a pathway. That's why Jesus' big idea, but those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and even greater works than these. It's kind of fascinating. I also think it's really a great idea that you have three gospels that are a lot alike. In fact, they're called the synoptics. You may have heard that phrase before. They're, they're a lot alike. I like to think about the word synonyms with the synoptics. They, they go together. They kind of say it in the same way. And then there's the Gospel of John. The seven miracles in the Gospel of John, they're not in the other Gospels. Or if there's something similar in the other Gospels, they're so different in tone and in implication and in storyline, they hardly read like the same story. When we heard the reference to the loaves and fishes that talked about the five loaves and the two fish, that little detail is only in the Gospel of John. That's the one where it's the little boy who saves the day, the little boy who has enough to feed all the people. The seven stories in the Gospel of John are signs that are pointing to a miraculous way of humanity to live with one another, to live with the planet, to heal all things. That's the storyline that's going on. I think it's really good news that you can have three that are alike, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then one that's different. It reminds us that in this new story of faith, this new story of humanity, this new story of life, we're not all called to be the same. That when someone is different, that when someone tells a different story, that when someone says it in a different order, that when someone's set of details or specifics don't match the other three, they don't match the majority, they're not like the others, that they're all included in the gospel of life. The reason the Gospel of John carries such power is because it reminds us that we don't all have to stand, look, feel, and say the same. Isn't that great news? It's actually kind of exciting stuff that's going on here inside of the Gospel of John. And sometimes it feels like you have to get into the details to sort of get it. That's one of the great gifts that the traditions of Bible reading and Bible study and, I don't know, like uh, dictionaries of early Judaism for sale at the bookstore, at the book table out in the lobby. Uh, what the teaching about the faith reminds us is that there's this really big and deep story. But here in the wondrous story of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus not as the miraculous exception, but as the magnificent rule for humanity, the big brother to humanity's call to live well with one another and with the planet. This is some of what's going on. Now, now there's a couple of words I just want to fuss with for a moment because they stuck in my mind, and I've realized as I've talked about this, other people get hung up on them as well. That little phrase, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing. Because some people are like, aha, there's the exclusivist nature again. Some people, those who believe, but not these other people. Maybe you heard it or it sort of uh, caught your ear. Those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and do even greater works than these. Well, that phrase that is used there in the Gospel of John, the word believe, there's a, there's a Hebrew and Greek word for it. The Greek word would be the pistus. The pistus, it, it means an action verb. I don't want to take you back to third grade or, for me, back to schoolhouse rock, but you might know the difference between verbs and nouns. The word believe is a verb. The word belief, pistis in the Greek, is a noun. A noun is a person, a place, or a thing, something you could possess, something you would have. A verb is something you do. The Gospel of John uses the English word believe, those who believe in me. This 83 times in the Gospel of John. 
Gospel of John is not that long. Honestly, if you were reading through it or scrolling through it on your tablet, you couldn't get a screen, a screen swipe or a page turn without seeing the word believe. It's all over. 83 times it uses it. The action verb believe. It uses the word belief, the noun, the thing you possess, zero times. Never uses it. In fact, only three books in the New Testament never use the word belief. The Gospel of John, the New Testament book of 1 John, and the book of 2 John. So anyway, I don't think they're written by the same people, but they don't hold the word belief anywhere in. There's no sense in the Gospel of John that what Jesus is getting at is those who hold the right belief. It's those who live on the action of believing. The other phrase that gets used a lot is the word eternal life. Eternal life to a lot of us can mean the place you go when you die. But we know that the word eternal doesn't mean a location. The word eternal means without beginning and without end. What Jesus is describing is a pathway for humanity without beginning and without end, a way of living and being. The belief. So what Jesus is describing is those who are on the path, the everlasting path, the path without beginning or end. Those people that live on that path, the path that I am on, the path that all the great teachers have been on, anyone who's living, doing, being, lifing, believing on that path, they will do even greater things than those of us who've been on the path. Welcome aboard everyone to the path. As opposed to, if you hold the right belief, the right noun, then you'll end up in the right place at the end of life. You can see how these become two different storylines. If you have the, possessed the key card to give you access to life after death is one narrative. If you are living and doing and being, that will continue without end and there's no competition and there's no failure. Do and go and live and be, Jesus teaches. So when Jesus does this whole thing, which you maybe heard in the reading, Philip saying, show us, the show us the Father, that's language in the Gospel of John, for show us the way of the family. Show us the way that we're all part of. Show us that way. And Jesus says, oh, don't you see that there's no difference between the Father and me, and I am in you, and you are in me. All of this distinction business has nothing to do with it. Come with me on the path, and I'll show you the way. You know how you find the way? By walking the way, by believing and doing the way. It's this radically inclusive narrative that's going on. Jesus saying, those who believe will come with me along the path. So here's where you get this really good news. That all of us who are on the path, we're not in competition with Jesus. The other thing I'm not going to tell you is be better than Jesus. Maybe you're already hearing that. Maybe, maybe you're hearing something like, do greater things than Jesus. And you're like, oh, for crying out loud, that sounds like my parents. I'm supposed to be better than my brother or better than them. Or it's back to school where I have to do better than I did last year. Or it's a work evaluation, like let's increase productivity. And somebody's just always driving for more and more and more and more. This little phrase, greater than, doesn't mean be better. It's not a competition. My, my friend Luke is an artist, a really good artist. He's actually going to be super famous someday. He's named Luke Hilstead. His mentor, his teacher, is an artist named Odd Nerdrum. Anyone ever heard of Odd Nerdrum? 
that's how famous he is, right? He's, he's like art famous. And Odd paints in the style of Rembrandt. Some of you have heard of Rembrandt. It's got a particular style to it. I had a big four by four painting of Luke's hanging in my office and my friend Barry Taylor, who's an art professor and a theologian, was standing in my office and he was looking at, at this painting without knowing anything about Luke or who painted it. And Barry said, wow, that looks an awful lot like an odd Nerdrum painting. And I'm like, how do you know who Odd Nerdrum is? And he goes, oh, he's really famous in the art world. And I said, how did you, I said, Luke studied under Odd Nerdrum. How did you know it was, he said, I can see it by the use of light. I can see it by the characters. I can see it by a style of brush strokes. He could see the way of Odd in Luke's painting, which you can see the way of Rembrandt in Odd's paintings. Luke is not trying to be a better painter than Odd Nerdrum. Luke is trying to paint his style the most Lukean way he can in the way of Odd Nerdrum, in the way of the great masters. He's trying to paint in the style and way of. That's the kind of notion that Jesus calls us to, not competition, but joining in this great path and joining in this great way. So what you end up with in the Gospel of John then become these seven recreation narratives that are called miraculous signs. Miraculous signs in the Gospel of John, they're not designed to break the laws of physics. They're stories that break open human potential. In fact, you read the stories in the Gospel of John and frankly, as miracle stories go, they're not all that impressive. I'm not trying to take anything away from them, but like they're not superhero stories. People have enough wine at the end of a wedding when they thought they were going to run out. A little boy doesn't die of a fever. A man's able to stand up by the side of a pool. A person is able to get to the side of a lake when they wanted to. There was enough food. A man who was blind is able to see, and a person was called back from a death he never should have experienced in the first place. I mean, they don't have Jesus flying or anything. These are not rules that break the laws of physics. These are stories that break open human potential. So can we jump into one of them with just a couple of minutes left? All right, I asked Nathan and, and I, Joe, if they would read this one. This is the second miraculous sign that you find in the Gospel of John, and this is one where it names it. So I don't know where they are. Yeah, right in the back. All right, let's hear it. and set out for his home. While he was on his way, his servants were always coming to meet him. They said, your son lives. So he asked them at what time his son had started to get better. And they said, the fever left him yesterday at about one o'clock in the afternoon. Then his father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son lives, and he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did while going from Judea to Galilee. John 4, 46 through 54. Thank you, guys. In other words, day two. 
the second miraculous sign. In this one, there's a Roman official whose son has a fever. He leaves his home and comes to Jesus, a Roman official coming to Jesus over in Galilee to a Jewish peasant and saying, can you help my son? He's going to die of a fever. Jesus' response to him is, if you don't see miraculous signs, you're never going to believe. You could put that in the tone of voice. It's like, oh, for crying out loud, you people, you just always need more. If you don't see a miraculous, I don't think you're going to believe in anything. That's one way you could read it. I read it where Jesus is saying, hey, everybody, you've got to have eyes to see the miraculous signs if you want to believe at all. If you want to get on the path, you have to have eyes to start seeing where it's happening everywhere. And then he says to the man, your son's not going to die. Go on home. I don't even know what miraculous thing happens here. Then the guy goes home, making his way home. His servants are coming. They run into him and say, hey, your son got better yesterday. And he says, when was that? And he said, about 1 o'clock. And they said, that's just when Jesus said those things. And that's it. That's the miracle. See, your son's not going to die. Now, what's going on here? Well, there's three breakings, at least, that are happening. One of the breakings is there's the breaking of a fever. Look, the boy doesn't die of a fever. That's really good news, especially for the little boy. And for the family, that's impressive. But all in all, one boy in one village at one time not dying of a fever, that's not really miraculous on its own count. You know what is miraculous? A billion children never getting a fever in the first place. One of the reasons I like talking about this is I like to remind us about how ordinary people are outdoing Jesus and why it's good news. This is a story about stopping fevers. There's no doubt about it. And it has compelled humanity to stop fevers. One of the number one causes of death of children still in the world today is fevers. In 1850, 43% of the human population didn't make it to age five. They died, mostly due to infections and fevers. It still ravages families all over the place. In, 19, in 1890, there was not a country in the world with a life expectancy above 45 years old. In 2016, there was not a country in the world with a life expectancy below 45 years in the world, years old, anywhere in the world. The difference is not that old people are getting older, it's that young people, children, are not dying. Do you know what has caused the great turnaround in death of children? As important as vaccines are, it's not vaccines. As important as medical care is, it's not medical care. You probably know what it is. Clean water and where we put our poop. That's what does it. You know what causes infection? Animal feces, human waste, getting into the water, getting into places in villages where people get sick from the bodily secretions of animals and humans. Do you know what has created the greatest sense of human relief of fevers? Porta potties. Porta potties are one of the great miraculous signs of our age. It has kept billions of kids from dying of fevers. And people figuring out how to take human waste and turning it into clean drinking water and clean burning fuel. It's incredible technologies, both seriously advanced ones that have to do with desalinization and purification and really simple ones like plastic huts with a container in the bottom where all the poop and pee goes instead of it running into the water system has changed lives. 
you go to the Dominican Republic, uh, February 15th through the 22nd, and you will meet people who will tell you how proud and happy they were when those porta potties arrived. Now, those are things that most of us won't have go to the bathroom in uh, unless it's the direst of emergencies. And I've reached the age in which I will take one at any given moment. But for the most part, you don't want to go into one of those. But all over the world, that simple technology of where we put human waste has revolutionized humanity. Boy, it can seem like the miracles you read in the Gospels aren't that impressive. And it can seem like garbage trucks, sanitation trucks, porta-potties are just real simple things. Those are modern-day miracles by the Gospel of John Jesus standards because kids are not getting fevers in the first place. But that's not the only breaking in this story. That dad, when he left his town, traveled for a day to walk up to a Jewish mystic that he'd heard rumors about and say, could you help my son? You're supposed to be inside the details of this story. You get sucked into it. A Roman official talking to a Jewish spiritual leader. There was great cultural distinction between those two. The idea of being a Roman soldier was that your part of society was dominating over the Jewish people. It was a police state. It was a modern-day police state. He had the power. The Jewish peasants didn't. They were in control. In fact, to Jesus, as a Jew, to talk with and to engage with a Roman soldier, with a Roman official, with a Gentile of any kind, would have meant Jesus became ceremonially unclean. He was not supposed to engage with Gentiles, and Gentiles were not supposed to engage with Jews. What's happening in this story is that a man is leaving his cultural boundary, crossing it to approach Jesus. Jesus leaves a cultural boundary to cross it to help a little boy. Think about what Jesus is doing here. Healing a little boy who's going to grow up to be a Roman official who will be part of the system that oppresses the Jews. There was all the reason in the world for Jesus to say, you're one kind of person and I am another. There were all kinds of reasons for the dad to say, I'm going to stay home and not cross a boundary to go over there. You know why the dad left? To save the life of his son. Some of you are boundary crossers. You know what it means to cross a boundary. You know what it means to step on the side of people that in our society we say you shouldn't stand and sit with. You know what it means to step on the side and defend people who are being persecuted and pushed down. You know what that's like. I met someone like this a couple of weeks ago. I was down in New Mexico working with people on the border, and we met a, uh, a man named Miguel and his wife, Dean. They're, uh, they're peasant farmer workers, as we would tend to call them, working in the fields. They don't have the kind of documentation that we like to see in this country. They don't fit the rules. He crossed the border. We asked him, why have you been here for 14 years? He said, I'm trying to feed my family back in Mexico. Here's a dad who left his land, crossed a boundary so that he could save his son. When have you heard that story before? Modern day miracle workers are those who are willing to cross a boundary, to cross a line on either side for the benefit of the children. Yeah, sometimes these miracles are really good news and they just sort of fill up our hearts and sometimes they start to call us into action that we need a little courage to take. 
Sometimes we have to say, maybe the boundaries that other people have set are actually bringing about human harm and not human flourishing. And the miraculous work of the modern day miracle worker is to cross that line. One third one, this one will be quick, a boundary breaking. And that is that it broke open the box that God seemed to be in in this story. The dad says, hey, miracle worker, come to my town. Come to my place. Come to where my son is. Bring your magic. Bring your power. Bring your godness to my place so my son won't die. And what does Jesus say? I don't have to go there. Here's a fun breaking. It breaks open the idea that God is in some places and not in others. Some of you have been saying that for a long time. Some of you are boundary breakers like this. You're breaking open the boundaries of God. You love being here. This is, I mean, look at this. I mean, seriously. It's not a, bad, not a bad view on a Sunday, right? It's a beautiful place. But you also know God is out there. You also know God is in here. You also know and have been saying all along, God is in all the places. In fact, you start sounding like the Apostle Paul, some of you, and you say, it's not only that God is in there, but we live and move and have our being in God. You begin to recognize that the distinctions that we make between God and humanity is a false narrative all along. And that's what the Christian notion of incarnation has always been about. So this becomes this story of modern day miracle workers breaking fevers, breaking cultural boundaries, breaking open the confines that hold God and hold back human potential. You start thinking about it and looking around a room like this and you're like, oh, there's somebody who does that in their own way. There's somebody who's been doing that all the time. There's somebody who seems to be stirring this kind of stuff all, up all the time. They want to make sure we use technologies and science and everything for human flourishing. Yeah, that's like somebody keeping a kid from dying of a, of a fever. Somebody who says, I'm going to stand on the side of those who everybody else pushes down. Oh, yeah, you're a modern-day miracle worker like out of the third chapter of John. You become these kinds of people. Look around. These are modern-day miracle workers sitting around all of you. In fact, I'm going to ask you to close out the sermon by reminding each other of this. That you'd look around. It's going to be like Oprah. You're going to look around like you're a modern-day miracle worker and you're a modern-day miracle worker. Because if you don't see it, you're not going to believe it. And when you start to believe it, you start to see it. All these people around, they're modern-day miracle workers. Would you turn around and remind somebody sitting beside you, remind them that they're a modern-day miracle worker and you're a modern-day miracle worker and you're a modern-day miracle worker? 